Hey listener, this is Aoife, just a little bit outside of the normal intro, letting you know that this episode is going to be a kind of tough one. It draws heavily on the story of the Cavan Orphanage fire and of course the broader issues of institutional abuse against children in 20th century Ireland at the hands of state-run institutions and religious institutions. So it gets a bit sad and tough and if you think you're not in the right headspace for that right now give it a miss um we're gonna have some stuff in the show notes with further information on the topics covered and with some supports that might be helpful if you decide you do want to give it a listen but find it a bit too distressing and we're wishing you all the best and we'll be back in two weeks with a lighter episode we promise Hello and welcome to Forever Young Adult, a podcast where I, Aoife, and I, Kira, talk about young adult fiction because we experience young adults and we are fictional. We experience young adults. We experience young adulthood and we are fictional. We are, I don't exist. I'm not real anymore. Don't do this to me. <laughs> for January, I faded out of existence just for the funds. That's what I did. So... I am the embodiment of young adult fiction. That's what I decided this morning. You know, technically, I haven't seen you in person in a while and you are very blue tinged in this like Skype screen we've got going on. So you could well be a digital ghost. That is true. <laughs> it feels weird to be a bit jokey this week because the book I read is so dark. It is a book that is relevant right now, unfortunately. Uh, It is called He Is Mine and I Have No Other, and it is by Rebecca O'Connor. And I'll get into why it's relevant in a bit, but like I just stumbled across this book. I found it in the Dublin City Library app and the cover, which isn't the cover we tweeted about. It has another paperback cover, which is just some people's faces overlapping in a really interesting way interested me enough to look at and I saw that it was by Rebecca O'Connor who's the editor of the Moth Literary Magazine which is a literary magazine been running for about 10 years now and I thought sweet it came out in 2018 the book didn't make much of a splash it wasn't really marketed as YA despite being about a teenager having a very adolescent experience because I imagine because the author It's an editor of a literary magazine, so it was marketed as more literary. A significant thing that is woven into this book is the history of institutional abuse in 20th century Ireland in institutions co-run by the state and the Catholic Church. So I was surprised to find it so relevant. Um, It's partly relevant. Like, I know that you started this book in near the end of December, but... It is particularly relevant right now because so many years ago a report was commissioned but the, the findings of it came out last week and the findings are of an investigation into the mother and baby homes in Ireland which ran from the beginning of the state until the late 1990s, 1998 was the, the closure of the last um, laundry as they are called and there have been mixed 
there's been mixed uh, feelings about the report, partly because the situation with the mother and baby homes was that the state would take in women who had become pregnant out of marriage. And in a lot of cases, they would then separate this woman from the baby when the child was born. And a lot of those children either died very tragically or were given up for adoption. And there's a lot of... There's a lot of like... It's not really contradictive evidence. The the women involved say that they were forced to give their children up to for adoption. And the report says that in some cases, the women were forced to give their babies up for adoption. Um, the report has been criticized for being predominantly by survivors for being soft on the church and the state and a lot of the apologies that have been given by the state are very weak I would say and a lot of the things that they're saying that they are going to do in order to redress both the women and the children is are things that they have offered in previous years that have not come to fruition so it will be Interesting to see if the pressure that is on the government at the moment will bring proper redress to the, I believe, 130,000 people to whom it is due. Um, It's also an issue of timing because a lot of these women and the children both are dying. Like it's it is a practice that goes back. 50, 60 years. And so even even when the last one closed, that was over 20 years ago, we're coming on to like 30 and 40 years for a lot of these places. And so these women are, are dying, unfortunately. Their children aren't getting to be reunited in cases where they do want to be. There's a lot of issues where the children don't have access to their um, birth certificates. There's a whole lot going on. Um, and it's it is a shame of the Irish, of the Irish nation, the mother and baby homes that, that it is sometimes said that at least these women had somewhere to go when they were rejected by their families for these unplanned pregnancies. But that is something that I strongly disagree with. Uh, and the, the, the commission report does show that women and children who went into these places did have a higher mortality rate than women and children that were not born in these places. And so you can't even defend them in terms of in terms of providing care for women in distressing circumstances. It's so the book features this. Yes. First of all, I'm just gonna back you up with some numbers. Yeah. 15% of the children born into these homes died. That is twice the infant mortality rate of the country at that time. Individual homes covered by the commission identified years where there was like a 50% or more death rate for kids born in a certain year. As you said, the report covered the years 1920 to 1998 uh, when 57,000 children and 56,000 mothers uh, passed through these homes. This doesn't count the approximate further 25,000 people who were in smaller county homes. Mm -hmm. Most of these homes were 
church run, but they are all state subsidized. Some of them were not church run and some of them were run by Protestant churches. And a most, most of the survivors I know are disappointed with this report because it lays the blame on the families of the victims and of the society, whereas the predominantly women um, who have survived these homes want blame laid on the institutions and individuals who abuse them. And they want apologies, they want acknowledgement, and they want reparations. And this is such a broad and deep history that no one can cover all of these stories and all of this tragedy. Um, but this is a pretty good book, I think, to read at the moment because what it attempts to do is tell the story of just a few people and in depth just to tell the story of one girl who didn't even come through the homes or anything. Uh, our protagonist just lives in a community that had an industrial school, which is not the same as a mother and baby home and an orphanage and she has a family connection with some people who passed through it and that's enough to cause her a huge amount of grief but uh yeah to get more in detail on what's covered on this book is there is a real life event called the cavern orphanage fire which happened on the 23rd of february in 1943 in saint joseph's orphanage in cavern town 35 children and one adult employee died in a fire. 11 children survived. A lot of people in the community blame the institution for the death. There is a poem by Flann O'Brien and Tom O'Higgins that goes, In Cavan there was a great fire. Judge McCarty was sent to inquire. It would be a shame if the nuns were to blame, so it had to be caused by a wire. That is, that is, that poem is kind of indicative of a lot of the complaints that survivors have in that the church, the Catholic church, the Protestant church, the state, the individuals who ran these homes are, gla are, are blanched over. They don't, yeah. they don't get any, they don't get named, they don't get blamed. In some cases, they're like, oh, we don't want to name these nuns because they're still alive. As it, and it would be distressing to them. And it's like, mm -hmm. yes, they did distressing things. I, like, I don't want to distress a 90-year-old either. But there are 80 and 70-year-old women who are distressed by the actions mm -hmm. of those people. That poem really does indicate the, the co I don't want to say cover up, but the degree to which they were not held accountable to their actions. Yes. Um, the Cavan Orphanage fire was made worse by insufficient fire training on the part of the people running the institution and in the local fire brigade. But institutional neglect was a huge part of it too. The order of nuns who ran the Cavan orphanage were cloistered, a very strictly cloistered order, and that means that they keep themselves completely removed from the surrounding community. They try not to be involved in the world. So 
For this reason, the people who uh, came to help with the fire were not familiar with the layout of the orphanage and the nuns weren't helpful. I'm just going to read from the Wikipedia page for a second. Mm -hmm. The fire began in the early morning of the 24th of February, but was not noticed until about 2 a.m. The sight of smoke coming from the building alerted people on Main Street. They went to the front entrance and tried to gain entry, but were not let in. Eventually, they were let in by one of the orphans, but not knowing the layout of the convent, they were unable to find the girls. By this time, all of the girls had been moved into one dormitory. At this stage, it would have been possible to evacuate all of the children, but instead, the nuns persuaded the local people to attempt to put out the fire. It has been widely claimed that the reason the orphans were not evacuated is that the nuns did not think it decent for the girls to be seen in public in their nightgowns. Two men went down to the laundry to try to put the fire out. The flames were now too intense for this to be possible and one only survived by being carried out by the, the other. At this point, it was no longer possible for the girls to get out through the main entrance or the fire escape. The local fire brigade had then arrived, but their equipment was not sufficient for this fire. In the absence of any other solution, the girls were encouraged to jump. Three did so, though with injuries. However, most were too frightened to attempt it. By the time a local electricity worker arrived with a long ladder and local man Louis Blessing brought down five girls. One child left by way of the interior staircase when it was still accessible. One child made it down the exterior fire escape. One child escaped by way of a small ladder held on the roof of the shed. The fire completely engulfs the dormitory and the remaining girls died. Yeah. Um, I rem- I actually remember hearing about that case um, about 10 years ago, perhaps. There was... So the inquiry that just came out this week is not the first report or inquiry into the mother and baby homes or the industrial schools or just the industrial system as a whole. And I do believe that there was a, an independent report done for that fire. And I, I remember vividly the fact that the nuns didn't want the girls to leave because they were in their night mm-hmm. clothes and it would be indecent. Um, yeah. yeah. This is a real life event, which is very heavily drawn upon in this book in a few ways do you want to get into the fictional bit let's get into the fictionalized version of this true story it's not going to be like a real cheerful pod we'll try to be lice but also it is a very serious subject matter Mm -hmm. it is the 90s and we are in cavan cavan the actual town is not given and any place names that do exist are fictionalized, but it is the events are based on the Cavan Orphanage fire. And our our protagonist, Lanny, has an aunt, Cecilia, who was born out of wedlock while Lanny's grandmother was very, very young when she was a teenager. And the baby was taken away from her and put into an orphanage and eventually adopted out and Cecilia then woke. Cecilia grew up in England and became quite a well-known writer and wrote a book of biographies for the 35 girls who died in the Cavan Orphanage fire based on what biographical details that could be brought up. Extracts from that fictional book are interspersed with the narrative here. 
The graveyard in which the girl's remains are buried is just up the road to Lanny's house and she goes there most afternoons after school. Okay. So it's it is quite local and known to her and it's yeah like does she she has all this information it hasn't been like hidden from the community or covered up locally no well what's happened is very recently cecilia's book has come out Mm -hmm. and um her mom lanny's mom deirdre has a copy of it and it's actually dedicated to deirdre and lanny was like oh i didn't even know they were talking to each other but lanny's read some of this book and She's finding herself just going and looking at the grave most evenings. Uh, just looking at it, thinking about it. Connecting oh. with the history of, of, of it a little bit. Like, you can, you can know that something happened near you in the past and not have it affect you until it's, like, humanized in some way. And it sounds like that's what's happened. Like, the book has humanized it much more. And instead of being, like these graves exist in in that all graveyards exist. They're now people to her. Yeah. Honestly, Lanny's kind of depressed. <laughs> cool. um, but she doesn't have the words for that. I would say a huge theme of this book is grief and generational trauma and how you carry it. So she's really upset by Cecilia's book, but she doesn't really have an outlet for it. Mm-hmm. So she does just kind of wander around holding all this grief there's a line very early in the book that is the sun bounced off every surface it was the wrong way round somehow I felt like it should be dark I had a fondness for the darkness just then I can't explain it and it is in the graveyard that she meets her love interest Okay. Who is a boy who she's noticed hanging around the graveyard quite often. She's like two houses up from the graveyard. It's a two or three minute walk from her house. Um, to the extent that like if there's a big funeral, people do be parking in their gro- their driveway and stuff. And she knows a lot of people who come and go to the graveyard. But he doesn't go for funerals. But he does go up there a lot of evenings. And she knows that he's a boarder at a nearby boarding school because he's always wearing the uniform and because no one mentions him. No one seems to know who he is. I was frightened of him in a way, of his grief, his loneliness. He looked like the loneliest person on the earth just then. I imagined he was the type of boy who wondered about things, as I did, who broke his heart wondering about things, who felt inexplicably lonely hearing voices in the next room or cattle off in the distance, or the sound of tires on the driveway. Yeah, she has depression. Yeah. That's, she might not have the language and the words for us, but she has the depression. Anyone who feels lonely at the sound of tires on the driveway is depressed. That is my blankest statement. This book is beautiful and immersive in its language. And it resonated very much with me as someone from a very nearby area. Like everything is very atmospheric. Everything feels underwater, uh, drowned. There's a lot of water imagery and there's, I think there's a line um, where Lani describes feeling 
blue, but not sad blue, just cold blue. Okay. I feel the color blue. Yeah. And it, I... it is depressing. Um, but this book is about grief and how you carry it and about how you are bu- you're born into a community and there are stories that happened long before you were born that will make you who you are and have an impact on how you understand the world. But because they happened long ago, you can't deal with them in the way that you deal with problems that are happening right now. And that can be really profoundly traumatizing mm-hmm. because, you know, Lani can't go and rescue these girls. She can't actually do anything to fix this situation. She's 15. Um, yeah. She doesn't, there's nothing she can do. Does she sit with it or does it sit on her? I would say it sits on her because she starts processing it a bit towards the end of the book. This book doesn't very much have a plot, to be honest. It is, it follows Lanny over the course of a school year. At the beginning, Cecilia's book has just come out and she's suddenly realised that this boy she sees in the graveyard, she's actually in love with him. Is she in love with him before talking to him? Or does she fall in love with him? Okay, okay. I mean, that's a very 15-year-old thing to do. She's in love with him because he seems like he might break his heart wondering about things the same way that she does. Okay, I, I empathise with that. Nobody wants to discuss their feelings out in the open because that's where, that's where they get you. If you're in the open, they can get you. I don't know who they are, but if you discuss your feelings in the open, they can be got. You exactly. can be known. Who wants yeah. to be known? The mortifying ordeal. Mm. That's from a poem. <laughs> it's from an article about goats. <laughs> no, it's not. It is. The mortifying ordeal of being known is about an article about goats. It is. That's worse than it being in a po- from a poem. I honestly thought it was from a poem. Um, I found the article. <laughs> The article is called I Know What You Think of Me. It is by Tim Creeder and it was published in 2013 in the New York Times. The first paragraph is, Recently I received an email that wasn't meant for me, but was about me. I'd been CC'd by accident. This is one of the darker hazards of electronic communication. Reason number 697 why all the internet is bad. The dreadful consequence of hitting reply all instead of reply or forward. The context is that I had rented a herd of goats for reasons that aren't relevant here and had sent out a mass email with photographs of the goats attached to illustrate that A, I had goats and B, it was good. Most of the responses I received expressed the appropriate admiration and envy of my goats, but the message in question was intended not as a response to me, but as an aside to some of the recipient's co-workers sighing over the kind of expenditures which I was frittering away my uncomfortable income. The word oof was used. And the last paragraph of the essay is, years ago, a friend of mine had a dream about a strange invention, a staircase you could descend deep underground in which you heard the recordings of all the things anyone had ever said about you, both good and bad. 
The catch was you had to pass through all the worst things people had said before you could get through the highest compliments at the very bottom. There is no way I would ever make it more than two and a half steps down such a staircase, but I understand its terrible logic. If we want the rewards of being loved, we have to submit to the mortifying ordeal of being known. I hate this. I hate this. I hate that I use that phrase regularly and that it comes from a New Yorker article about a guy having an existential crisis because people accidentally cc'd him and now he's like, oh no, someone in the world doesn't like me. Because it's relatable? Because it's so relatable! I use it a lot. Tell you what, our protagonist Lani is also so humiliated by just existing in the world. She is embarrassed constantly. She's like kind of tall, so people notice her and she sticks out and she does not want to be seen. It's hard. It's hard as a teenager being seen and it's also hard as an adult being seen. It's just hard to be seen and it's hard to be loved and... I say this, but at the same time, this Christmas, my dear Aoife got me a beautiful, you're my dear Aoife, by the way, dearest Aoife got me a beautiful, beautiful Christmas present. And she could not have done that if she did not know me. And also just this week, I received a beautiful Christmas present from another dear friend, my dear Orly. And again, she could not have gotten me this gorgeous present if she did not know me. And my partner got me a gorgeous present that again, had to know me for and I'm just like oh in order to be loved you have to be known exactly like that dude said and I don't want anyone to know me but I also I want the benefits it's horrifying I will say that the benefits are great does not have to be an ordeal I'm currently reading a book about psychological safety which is Mm -hmm. how people feel comfortable in situations and in interactions. And an important thing is that we can all give or take away psychological safety from other people at any time. And by being a person who extends psychological safety to other people in your life, like if you allow them to be a person without judging them, then they allow you to be a person without judging you, hopefully, if they're cool. And we all get a little bit more warmth and community in our lives without shame. I I love that. Okay, I changed my mind. We should all go become known to the people that we love. But only the people we love. Carefully. Carefully. Carefully known. We should all go become carefully known so we can reap the benefits of being known. Does Lani benefit from being known? She does. A real tragedy in this story so okay real quick i'm just going to speed through the main points of lanny and leon's romance i was going to um ask real quick if she ever talks to him but they have a romance so i assume that she does they meet at a disco amazing uh they dance they shift they go outside there's a little bit of feeling each other up over or under under Ooh, very risque. Yeah, and he sends her a note, which I'm going to read to you. My darling Lanny, I dreamt last night that I was alone in a dark house. I walked upstairs to my room and you were lying there naked on my bed. 
I wanted desperately to touch you but couldn't reach you, couldn't walk through the doorway. You are like Ophelia, pale and beautiful. I can't stop thinking about you. There were moments the other night when I felt so warm and comfortable with you, though it was cold out there. If I don't see you soon, I think I might lose my mind. I know it's only days since we met and that we barely know each other, have barely spoken, but it feels right. I'm not used to feeling this way. LB. P.S. Farewell to last night. The memory will not fade. Though I were to die for it, I wish that it were beginning now. If you wish to respond, please give a letter to Geraldine McGovern, fourth year, and it will reach me safely. (laughs) Oh my God. So I was a teenager that sent love notes and also sent platonic notes in class. And I still, at 28 years of age, have a a shoebox of all of the ones I received in my childhood bedroom. So I feel very connected to this boy who is like, I'm going to, I shifted a girl. I'm going to write her a note to say that I liked her. Now, none of mine were as explicit as that. Mm -hmm. My God, what if someone else read that note? Yeah, he's a weird kid. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I'm glad that they have a method of communication because like I wrote my notes but I could have just texted everyone Mm. but you had only so much credit yeah it was in the days of like credit and not um yeah my parents once because my initial phone bill was on my mom's phone bill and my parents once sat me down and was like why are you sending over 50 texts a day and I immediately switched to Facebook messaging everyone Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that they would never do that again I I've got things to say I've got people to talk to the details aren't important yep there's a real tragedy in Lani and Leon's relationship where Lani does correctly identify that he's a lonely soul like she is and he is hurt by something and he does think about things, worry about things, break his own heart with worrying. But neither of them are really ready to talk about the things that traumatize them. So they... They're just traumatized together? Yes. And Lani's thing doesn't make her an outsider in her community because not everyone knows about Cecilia. Her grandmother kept the pregnancy secret. Um, No one really knows about her connection with the orphanage. But Leon's thing is that his mother died when he was seven and she died being stabbed to death by his father. So everyone knows that. He can't get away from it. And Lanny doesn't know it at first. So like her friend at first is like, oh, okay, you like this boy. That's okay. That's cool. But then she has a falling out with her friend and the friend starts like calling Leon like this Adams family freak. Like, don't you know what he did? Don't you know what his family's like? And Lanny learns that, you know, he's ostracized and people don't like him because there was a murder in his family. And we are very pro judging, judging people for the sins of their father. Both, both now and then. It's that Lanny suddenly like, I ran his house. I talked to his father. What if Leon's a murderer too? Like it's, it's nonsense, obviously. And it's panic and fear. But it immediately changes how she sees him. 
and she does lash out and say like I can't Mm. believe you never told me this I don't want you anywhere near me and later on she apologizes I was going to say that there is also the hurt of finding out something from someone else and that doesn't mean that you need to share your traumas or your secrets before you're ready but it is almost always best if the people who you feel that you will share those things with hear them from you because there's a there's a trust back and forth whereas if you find it out from someone else you're like why did you keep this from me as opposed to you recognizing Mm -hmm. that they're telling you when they're ready and after that point they just can't really have a relationship because Leon can't trust her again she sends him a lot of letters saying you know I'm sorry I didn't mean it I still love you don't you still love me can't you understand it was an impulsive thought and it sucks because sort of in the first half of the book uh Leon is very obsessed with Lanny and she sort of like oh okay yeah I'm into this this is cool and she starts reciprocating and they have a nice time and then in the second half of the book after she finds this out about him you know he closes off and she is as obsessed as he was but without reciprocation yeah and it becomes very damaging and difficult for her because as we established she wasn't in a great place to start with I might read the last note that Leon sends Lanny um, Mm -hmm. because he's he's a few years older than her he's in his leaving cert year and he says like you know I thought we could have something I wasn't ready to open up and now it feels like there's no point because I'm heading off to school Um, and she he sends back all the letters she sent him and says I have lied to you as I have lied to others because I wanted you to know who I was before knowing what I had experienced. No one seems to want to know. I was there. Sometimes I think that that is where my life began to take shape, in that house, when I was seven years old. I was there. I witnessed my father kill my mother. I can remember nothing from before that time. That's me. I know you won't like that. No one can. I know that sometimes I frighten you. I am, after all, complicit. I didn't try to stop him. I helped to kill her by staying silent. That's why I'm treated the way I am sometimes. That's why people at school look at me funny. Who can blame them? People say my father had married my mother on the rebound from a local girl he had been with, that he had never really loved her, but I don't believe that either. People didn't like her much. They thought she had airs and graces about her. They thought she looked down her nose at him, just because she was English, probably. But she was no different from any of them. They didn't like my father, either, after that, though they were probably a little quicker to forgive him. And then he he goes into actually describing what he witnessed on the night. And then he talks about how no one wanted to know, and no one asked him what impact it had on him, or if he'd seen anything, everyone presumed he hadn't. Because uh, no one wanted to imagine a world where a seven-year-old could have witnessed that. The title, which is, of course, he is mine and I have no other, which is a little bit about the obsessional relationship between Lanny and Leon, actually comes up in this letter. Um, and it is about Leon describing his father. 
He wasn't the same as I remembered when he came back home. He was much more subdued. He wouldn't read me stories anymore. I had to read them myself. But I liked having him around. When my aunt went away, I was sent off to boarding school. I only see my father the odd time I'm home. I can't really stand to be there for any length of time. He's lost in his own thoughts most of the time. It's like I'm in the way. I feel so sorry for him, though. I still do. I have shared unspeakable things with him. But I love him. He is my father. He is mine and I have no other. When he references that his father went away, did his father go to prison for the murder of the mother? Or is he just ostracized from the community for a period of time before coming back? No idea. It's not clear in the book. But given that Leon goes to live with his aunt for a good while, I would say very possibly the father was in prison. Okay. Yeah, and the, the letter ends then. I wanted to tell you about things myself over time, but I was frightened and it was all taken away from me and I had nothing left. I can no longer think of you, Lani. I must forget you. I must spend my life forgetting. Love, Leon. Now, don't get me wrong. These are very dramatic teens. Yes. Um, these are teens who have broken their hearts wondering about things. They are extremely well met in that. And it is very unfortunate that that vulnerability and trauma ends up also being a barrier to them having a relationship that would have been healing and nice. Mm -hmm. But it also feels just, it is a very sincere book. And part of the beauty of it, I think, is that it does explore those dark and forbidden topics that like do damage when they're not explored. Like Leon mentions how no one asked him if he'd seen anything the night of his mother's murder because no one wanted to know. So it's become a massive secret in him where he feels like he can't become close to someone unless they know, but also he can't become close to someone because if they know, they won't want to be close with him. Yes. It is contradictory, but the logic makes sense. It is something, Mm -hmm. I don't want to make everything queer, but it feels a little bit queer where you're like, in order to be fully understood, people need to know that I am gay. But the fear of telling them, especially as a teen, when you're not sure what reception you're going to get, and like, it might go fine. But they might reject you. They might reject you softly or they might reject you very harshly. And the fear of that is enough to keep you quiet until you are until you can be sure of at least a soft rejection. Oh, the inherent queerness of being goth. I just mean like I I mean the inherent queerness of having something secret within you. Yeah, it is. It is a closeting. They are closeted. Uh, Leon, you know, says I must spend my life forgetting, but he doesn't exactly have a healthy plan. Um, Lanny has a little, it's a little bit different for Lanny. Um, As she gets closer with Leon, um, she starts isolating herself from her friends because she's like, I'm cooler than they are. I have a cool boyfriend. We're deep. We're different. You guys are just, you care about TV shows and makeup and it's stupid. 
and as that relationship starts to fall apart a little bit more people are teasing her because of her weird boyfriend who no one wants to talk to because his family's a freak show and she goes into a really bad place she has disordered eating for a while she um she doesn't conventionally self-harm but she does things like staying out in the cold just to freeze herself um and she she uses drink badly as a coping mechanism but eventually she starts healing a bit and that's mostly through talking with her grandmother and hearing her grandmother's story um because her grandmother had a passionate love affair with a local guy when she was a teenager Mm -hmm. and they were very happy together and he was beautiful he thought she was smart and quick and he liked hanging out with her and he was the best swimmer in the county and everyone knew that and he taught her to swim and then she got pregnant and she was sent away to an aunt's house where they didn't treat her badly but they didn't let her leave the house and she wasn't allowed to talk to her boyfriend and she had the baby and she thought this baby's so beautiful everyone in the entire world will love her no one will hate me for having this baby because she's the best baby in the world the baby was taken away from her And she had to go back to her life as if nothing had happened. And the grandmother talks to Lanny about how that was and about how that left a terrible mark on her whole adult life. But it's also a path shown to Lanny of kind of how you can get on. Like the grandmother took a job cleaning in a building opposite the orphanage so she could go there and look for a while her lunch breaks and try figure out which of the kids might have been hers when the orphanage fire happened she like desperately demanded uh, after some of the nuns whether her daughter had died and you know was just told listen no one under two died so and your child would have been under two at the time yeah (sighs) so it's not a it's not a perfectly healthy life it lances the wound for Lanny at least to understand this one story. Life continues after tragedy and that is difficult and true. I would say this book has three main themes. Okay. Um, one is the legacy of trauma mm-hmm. in a community. Because at the start of the book... Lanny, you can see the grief in her. But the weird thing is you can't really see a reason for it. She's got quite a nice life. She's She's got close friends. She's got two parents who love her. She also lives with her granny who she loves. Uh, she's got a dog. But she's not really happy is the thing. She's just, there's nothing materially wrong with her life except that she has a sadness in her that she can't explain there's nothing materially wrong with her life but it is lacking yeah that makes complete and part sense of it to is me. the story she knows about like she knows her mom has this sister that she doesn't get to see because her uncle who's a priest thinks it wouldn't be appropriate for them to talk to each other uh she knows her grandmother's got this grief in her as well and she can't stop thinking about that and even though maybe technically no one ever hurt Lanny she is hurt she carries that trauma it's in her community it's in her family and 
while she starts navigating, you know, being a teenager with desires as well, it's in how she relates to that. Um, she does have a lot of difficulty having any agency in her sexual desire. There's a line where she says it feels like it must be wrong to want this this much. And that culture which created the institutional schools and the mother and baby homes is still there damaging Lani and her relationships. As it's still damaging the relationships of teenagers today. Yeah. The other thing, like it is difficult to have agency in your sexuality as a teen, partly because there is very few, like it is uncomfortable to to mess around at home. It's uncomfortable to mess around in your partner's home. And it therefore, anywhere that you are messing around tends to be some sort of semi-public area. And therefore there's a whole lot of secrecy around it. So even if you are doing acts that you very much want to do, there is like an edge to it. And I do- There's a shame about it. And there's a shame about it. And I would just like, teens today and teens in the future is I want them to do things safely in their own homes if you're gonna do it I'd rather you do it in the house yeah (laughs) it's just more comfortable for everyone except that it's uncomfortable (laughs) for everyone socially yeah like I don't have kids it is socially very uncomfortable to know that a 15 year old wants to have sex it is because like that's a baby it's a baby um but like it's not even like the sex itself like as a penetrative act I'm like if they're going to be snogging against walls I'd prefer if they were snogging against inside just inside and not in public and I'm, it's not that I'm like, you should hide your sexuality in public. I'm just like, that's just not great either. You shouldn't have to be looking around to see if people are watching. You should be able to snog yeah. in, the, in the sitting room while I'm in the kitchen pretending that you're watching a movie. Yeah. <laughs> it does seem like one of the healthier ways to do it in terms of like pneumonia <laughs> and also in terms of not stigmatizing your own desires also i said snog which is the most english thing i've ever said because these children my children will be irish children and they will be shifting other people not each other how do you know you might have incest babies you don't know do you have control over that okay no no shaming my children's sexuality or their desires but if they turn out to be incestuous there will be so much therapy, so much therapy for everyone. And that's it. That's just how it is. I endorse that. To be honest though, I might just put my children in therapy without like a triggering event. I might just be like, hey, you exist in the world. Do you want to go to therapy? And they'll be like, I'm seven. And I'm like, exactly. That's a terrible age. (laughs) It is. At so at one point, Lanny's mother does like say you have to go to a doctor, but it's how how what what do you want to happen here? Like, it's really great that you do want to help her, and this is when she's really like not eating much and not talking to her friends, and Leon's not talking to her, and there's obvious things to be worried about. But um, yeah, the resources weren't there. Yeah, the resources and... are barely here now. 
uh, they're not there for a lot of people. And for the people that they are there for, they're not always great. But poor Lanny is in the 90s, which is even worse again. Have you considered not existing in the 90s? I got out of there in five years. I think that's pretty good. <laughs> oh, oh my God. Um, I just want to find something I wrote about this. Um, he is mine and I have no other. It just feels murky, dreamy, like the price of salt. The same being insane with desire, just swamped with emotion, and the whole thing is drowning. Rain and damp and cold all the time. The sense that even yourself is a mystery. You're just sprung out of layers and layers of secrets and trauma and of stories unknown. It is interwoven with the imagined accounts of the lives of the girls who died in an orphanage fire in the town, based on the one in Cavan. Lyrical, oppressive, immersive, like Heaney's bog bodies, like the shape of water. This book is poetry. It's, I know the last book we read, you were saying it is poetic and it is so easy to flow through because it the, the language draws you through. Mm-hmm. This isn't quite the same as that. It's murky, like I said. It is dark. It is like trying to swim through bog water. But that is very appropriate, I think, for the topics involved. And there's a beauty in that as well. Yes, because it is, like I was saying, a true communication of a real experience that people have. I didn't touch very much on the way that the stories of the girls in the orphanage are woven through. The book is in sections which are kind of like longer than chapters, but too short to really call anything else. And the start of each one starts with like a two page or one page little bit in each girl's own words. There isn't 35 of them. There's just a few. Um, But they just talk about their lives. And because they're talking about these girls who live together some of them contradict each other and reference each other and it does at least give you a sense of humanization yeah you get a sense of who these people were um just to read a paragraph of one of them i'm number 17 that's not my age it's a special number i was given when i first came here sometimes i forget that my name is denise My favourite thing is to make paper dolls and cover them in silver paper, which me and my friend Ashlyn get from the bin at school, from the towny girl's sweet wrappings. We tear the wrappings into wee jumpers and skirts and boots. At night, we put the girls in matchboxes to sleep. Ashlyn doesn't give hers names, even though I told her to. She said she can't think of any, so she just gives them numbers too, like us. That's just one paragraph of them. These are the stories that are interspersed with Lanny's. Yeah, just give you a sense of the girls who lived in this institution, the girls who died there, um, and the tragedy it is. I, I know that we are wrapping up, but, and it's something that's been like semi on my mind for this whole pod, which like we're talking about generational, generational um, trauma. trauma. We're talking about generational trauma and that invariably brings up the Holocaust and the Jewish experience to which I am not a part but um, and these girls being given numbers 
as opposed to names is reminiscent of that and it's also just reminiscent of um, a Twitter thread that I read recently by a Jewish man who was talking about a family picture that he has that was taken in the 1920s and it's it's the whole of his extended family including like a picture of his of his direct family um like within the picture there's a picture of like his great grandfather and his wife and they're in a picture in the picture because they'd already immigrated to America and he is like going through within the thread all of these people within the picture because all but three or four of them died during the Holocaust sorry all but three or four of them died during the Holocaust and very few of their names are known to him and it's just losing people's identities and your family's identities as time progresses and due to massive traumas and this girl even as she is alive knowing that she has a name and what her name is but having to remind herself of that and this other girl being like I don't even know commonplace names so I will number my dolls is Mm -hmm. that is hitting me harder in this moment than I like the whole book hearing about the book is hitting me but just that particular antidote and the and the and the things that it is it is triggering in my in my head are um hits it hits Eva. that's it that's what i got to say it's a difficult topic <laughs> and maybe a good way to close off the discussion of the book would be with the introduction to the book within a book mm-hmm. uh, written by Lanny's Aunt Cecilia about the cabin fire. Industrial schools were commonplace in Ireland up until the latter half of the 20th century. Poverty-stricken families, mainly, and unmarried women were compelled to send their children to these institutions. Tens of thousands of children, only a small proportion of whom were ever actually orphans, ended up in detention. The schools were run by Catholic religious orders and were prevalent in cities and towns throughout the country. Contrary to popular belief, they were not charitable but state-run organisations. The Department of Education provided a grant for each child committed by the courts. This this institutionalised method of childcare was economically more viable than providing individual families with financial support. It also appeased the Catholic Church by allowing them to maintain a level of political power within the community. One such school, established in 1869 and run by an enclosed order of nuns, was in operation for almost 100 years. What the girls suffered there was not unique, but was unique, however, was the way in which 35 of these girls so needlessly lost their lives. On the night of the 23rd of February 1943, a fire started in the laundry of the convent. As the fire intensified, some girls tried to jump from the second floor windows, while others were overcome by smoke or consumed by flames. The 35 girls who perished were buried in an unmarked grave. 
What follows is a brief glimpse into the lives of these girls, a means of memorialising and remembering their all too short lives. Using what information I could glean about their backgrounds, their ages and the running of the school through research and interviews with survivors, I have tried to give each girl a unique voice. We need to be reminded not only of the systematic abuse here and throughout the country, but of the fact that these girls were not simply numbers. They had names. Yep. Not very inspiring of me, but uh, yep. They they are all people and uh, should be should be remembered as such. Lots of people have ideas about our obligations as cultural descendants of institutions like these um, and what we can and should do, what we owe to survivors and those who didn't survive. I suppose my point of view is that remembering that they had names is a really important part of it. Holding to account the people who did the harm is a very important part of it. And listening to those who are still there to tell their stories is another very important part. And beyond that, I don't think there's one right way to live with the knowledge of the Cavan Orphanage fire or the findings of the recent report. But remembering that these people were people deserves the dignity that we owe to all people. And allowing ourselves to deal with that difficult thing is kind of something we all have to do. And that's my episode this week. I will be back in two weeks time with a much lighter read for February. I'm going to be doing Once in Future by... Um, I'm still thinking about your book. So Once in Future by A.R. Capessa and Corey McCarthy, who are a married couple that have written this book together. And it is um, a, a sci-fi future retelling of the King Arthur myth um, as King Arthur is reincarnated into the main character, Ari Halix, um, and is the 42nd reincarnation of King Arthur. And there's also... Merlin, who is aging backwards throughout the centuries, and they have to break a go on a quest and break a curse. It's a fun romp, and it is uh, very queer and very inclusive, and I'm very excited about sharing it with all of our listeners. I'm really stupid because you said 42nd reincarnation, and I was like, that's not very long. No, it's, it's very long. It is um, 42 generations of people. Distant future. Distant future. We will put we'll put links in the in the bio for further reading about the, the laundries um, and also for supports that you can reach out to if listening to this was distressing. Yeah, so as always you can reach us on our social media on Twitter, we are Forever YA Pod, and you can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Forever Way pod. We are posting a little bit more on Instagram at the moment, some book covers and whatnot as 
Forever YA podcast. And we are also available to email if you have something a bit longer to say to us at foreveryapod at gmail.com. And that's for the number, not the word. And yeah, that's where you can talk to us. Tell us your thoughts on this episode. Tell us what books you want us to read in the future. Tell us how institutional abuse against citizens is bad and we can agree with you. Um, I'm also going to say institutional abuse against non-citizens is also real shit. Yes, (laughs) I didn't mean to exclude non-citizens. My apologies. Thank you for... Thank you, Isa. Institutional abuse. Bad. That's the blanket statement. And you guys can quote us on that here at Forever YA Pod. Abuse. Bad. Oh, I can't wait to read a space adventure next week. (laughs) Yeah, I can't wait to hear about a space adventure. Take care of yourselves and take care of your communities. Keep safe. Wash your hands. Be safe. Be sound. Stay apart. Wash your hands. Um, Bye. Bye.